listeners. My name is Nat Wittiatanasset. And my name is Michael Waits. Our guest today is Ian Lee, founding team and associate director of Merkle Science, a provider of blockchain transaction monitoring and intelligence solution. Hi, Ian. How are you? Hi, Nat. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for being here, man. Awesome. So just to give our listeners a few colors on your background, Ian, can you tell us more a bit about yourself, how you ended up in the crypto world and at Merkle Science today? Definitely. So my journey was actually pretty interesting. I was introduced into the world of cryptocurrency probably sometime in 2016, but never really started paying attention to it till about 2017. So in my background, prior to joining Merkle Science, was actually from a more traditional professional path, which was as a lawyer, right? So I started out as a boring capital markets lawyer, advising companies with the likes of, you know, IPOs, mergers and acquisitions. And it was during my time as a lawyer that, you know, dealing with securities led me to engage a lot of people in the cryptocurrency industry who were seeking advice from lawyers as to, you know, whether or not cryptocurrency was a security. I think, you know, people in the space would who's been here for a couple of years would know that in the very early days, a lot of the debate was around, you know, is cryptocurrency a security and should it be regulated as a security? So as we started to get more inquiries around this, I naturally started to do more research. And it was through my research that I got introduced to the world of crypto and the broader world of blockchain. And as I, you know, researched more into the space, I found that as a nascent technology, it really had the potential to impact many different industries. And I really wanted to get more involved. Now, unfortunately, the law firm that I was with was a very traditional law firm, right? And they weren't too keen on entering into, you know, this new space where it was seen to be full of illicit actors and there's a lot of negative media. So recognizing that, you know, the firm that I was with didn't want to enter into the space, that led me to go out and look for new opportunities. And in 2017, you know, when crypto, well, when the ICO boom was going on, there were a lot of crypto events going on. And it was through these events that, I naturally came into contact with Mergank and Nermal, who are the two co-founders at Merkle Science. And when they shared with me their vision of wanting, you know, to create a company to build infrastructure that would bridge the gap between, you know, crypto and the traditional world, I thought, hey, this is an opportunity to leverage on my experience dealing with regulation to create a product to help crypto businesses, you know, bridge that gap. That's awesome. So how does Merkle Science help companies, financial institutions, and government agencies deal with supposedly illicit worlds of crypto back in the days? Excellent question. And I love the fact that you used supposedly. So <laughs> here at Merkle Science, we offer a variety of different software solutions as well as traditional services. So our initial product that the company started out with was with a blockchain monitoring platform that was designed to perform AML monitoring for crypto businesses. In other words, you know, it was a platform to help businesses that were accepting cryptocurrency perform source of funds analysis in order to detect if, you know, the Bitcoin that they were accepting were coming from, you know, ransomware, you know, terrorist financing or related thefts and hacks, right? Now, after we started out from that platform, we then discovered through conversations with clients and regulators that there was a need beyond just providing them with a solution to do transaction monitoring, but there's a need to assist them with areas like investigations, right? So the second platform that we then launch is our tracker solution that we primarily sell today to law enforcement and FIUs to assist them with investigations. 
Now, alongside these two, one of the things that we realized is as much as Bitcoin has been around for 10, over 10 years today, many organizations still don't fully understand the technology. And so as great as our solutions were, the other hurdle that we encountered were that, you know, clients of ours didn't have the necessary expertise or knowledge to implement these solutions effectively. So off the back of that, we then launched the Miracle Science Institute, where today we offer training and certification to both you know, public sector and private sector, because we recognize that as much as you know, we built solutions for private sector to guard against anti-money laundering risk, there's also a need to educate the public sector, you know, governments for introducing these laws. And you know, I'm happy to say that today we're seeing many different regulators proactively reach out, wanting to educate their people so that you know, when it comes to introducing and coming up with regulatory frameworks, they have the necessary knowledge in order to do so without stymieing the industry. Based on my understanding and what I researched previously about the AML space, it seems that there's no clear regulations on the crypto market yet, apart from what the FATF, which is the Financial Action Task Force, has come up with in terms of like guideline for virtual asset service provider, which put in place what kind of business should follow their rule and what they need to do in order to make sure that they're not dealing with funds that are coming from illicit activities. Am I understanding that correctly, that the AML rule or the framework that you're helping companies work with is the regulation that FATF has put in place? I mean, definitely the FATF, which stands for the Financial Tax and Action Task Force, they serve as the guiding authority globally, right? So, I mean, just to take a step back and, you know, to help with the audience understand the role that the FATF plays. So the FATF is this international organization that basically come up with recommendations, regulations to guide the world in how they can come up with appropriate AML laws. And after these recommendations have been proposed, it's then up to the countries themselves to come up with local laws to transpose this into national regulation. And so since the FATF's recommendations that came out in 2019, we've then seen countries all over the world come up with their own interpretation of it. Right. So for example, here in Singapore, where I'm based, the MAS has come up with the Payment Services Act, which has introduced a licensing framework for all businesses that want to deal with cryptocurrency. Right. And similarly, we've seen similar regulations come up in countries like Thailand, Korea, and Japan. So I think the world that we live in today is very different from two to three years ago. We are seeing specific regulations coming up in their respective countries, right? With slight differences, of course, because, you know, the way that different countries interpret these recommendations that have been put up, there are slight variations. And this has caused some issues with the industry. Can I ask you this? Do you see the need for better coordination between the regulatory bodies? Are you starting to see that? That's really the first thing. And the second thing is you said we live in a different world than we did even just back in 2016 and 17, which wasn't that long ago. Do you also get the sense that people feel like the crypto world, for lack of a better term, is less filled with these sort of bad actors so we no longer have to use the word supposedly we just believe that it's not like that anymore and that it's actually more maturing into like a real financial marketplace type of place? Definitely. So let's you know, talk about your, your first question. Right. So I think the crypto world, more so than a traditional, there is a need for regulatory bodies around the world to coordinate globally. Now, the reason I say this is because 
of the nature of blockchain itself, right? Which is a decentralized technology. And the nature of it being decentralized means that it is literally impossible for a country to shut it down. Unless you deny your entire citizens from access to the internet, there's no way to stop people from using Bitcoin. There's no way to stop people from using Ethereum. And I think regulators are wising up to that fact, right? That it's not enough to say, you know, I'm going to make it illegal in my country because unless you block your country out from using the internet, anyone is able, will be able to bypass that. And, you know, with the use of VPN, it becomes even easier for people these days to mask where they're actually logging in from. Right. Right. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, whenever countries come up with laws that make their jurisdiction unfavorable, what do these crypto companies do? Well, they just simply, up, yeah, exactly. They uproot themselves. They use what we call, you know, regulatory arbitrage to simply move next door. I mean, in fact, just to share with you, one of the interesting questions that we sometimes get from clients when I pitch to them saying that, hey, you need our solution because you're based in a jurisdiction with regulatory requirements. They turn around and ask me, that's interesting. So where do you think I should move to next? Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and they're Where's like, Where's my next plane ticket to? Exactly. Right. And, and they blatantly ask this. And I mean, putting on my lawyer hat for, for a second, you know, what they're doing is not illegal. No. Right? They're simply moving to another jurisdiction where their activity is not regulated. And the ease in which you can do this, especially, you know, with remote working becoming more common and mm-hmm. with travel pre-COVID being so accessible, it was really very easy for a lot of these crypto companies to simply you know, decide overnight, hey, we're just going to move our base of operations to another country, right? And it cost them literally nothing. Yeah, I mean, I could set up a company tomorrow in Estonia and nobody could touch me, right? Exactly. In fact, you know, I have an e-Estonia citizenship, right, which I applied for online. Good right, which allows you did? <laughs> I did. I did. I was one of the first, you know, um, who applied for it when they first came out with it. And I still have to have the card and everything. I love so, it. <laughs> I think with, with all this taking place, regulators need to recognize that it is not enough for them to act by themselves, right? They need to coordinate with other regulatory bodies globally if they really want to make any progress in regulating the technology because it cannot be done in isolation. So I'm based in Thailand where the regulations on crypto exchange, ICO portal, and token issuing is pretty transparent and clear for a business to apply for licensing and be regulated. I think that's one of the first generation of regulations that's come out, which is how do you provide access to crypto in a way that is regulated by the regulators. But then if you talk about mass adoption, there's no clear regulation on how crypto will be used for payment or how it will be used for remittances. So can you give us an understanding of how important this AML piece is for regulating crypto and facilitating adoption for for the mass population? Yeah, definitely. So to understand the, the risk that crypto poses from a money laundering perspective, we need to first understand, you know, what is cryptocurrencies? Cryptocurrencies are a digital asset that doesn't exist in the physical realm, right? We can't touch it. But at the same time, we need to recognize that these virtual currencies hold tremendous value because not only can they, you know, represent like stable coins represent the U.S. dollar, the Singapore dollar, not only can they represent exchange for goods and services, they can also represent property. They can represent pieces of art. And in fact, I'm pretty sure you guys would have read in the news, you know, NFTs, when when they went crazy, there were NFTs that were selling for double digits in the millions. 
And so the fact that you have this virtual asset that anybody with an internet connection can transfer from any country to any other country with internet connection, that poses a huge money laundering risk. I mean, you know, if I were to pose a question to you guys, you know, imagine a world without cryptocurrency. If you had to move large amounts of value from one country to another country, your options are typically pretty limited, right? Unless you're going to, you know, smuggle that or, or tap onto some illegal channels, typically the only way for you to move large amounts of value will be through our financial systems, which are heavily regulated entities that are required to do KYC, AML, and they basically act as the gatekeepers, right? They make sure that nobody is able to move large amounts of value without first going through proper compliance checks to make sure that there's no illegitimate use case. With the introduction of cryptocurrencies, anybody criminals and non-criminals alike now have a way to bypass all the KYC laws and AML laws and move as much money as they want. And I think we also need to recognize that transfer of cryptocurrency doesn't just happen through cryptocurrency transactions. In fact, if I wanted to not you or, or Michael one Bitcoin, instead of sending cryptocurrency to your wallet, I have the option of you know just sharing my private key with you. With access to my private key, you can access the cryptocurrency. And so the AML risk that cryptocurrency poses and the risk that it poses to our traditional financial systems and laws, I think that definitely can't be you know, overstated. But at the same time, regulators need to also recognize that the ease in which cryptocurrency facilitates transactions also allows them to do more advanced monitoring, surveillance, and investigations, right? Because of the transparent nature of cryptocurrency, that also means Every transaction is recorded on a ledger, which can be analyzed by companies like ourselves in order to provide useful intel for businesses and for regulators to conduct investigations and more effective transaction monitoring. Is it possible to give an example where somebody's trying to do something that would violate the AML rules in any particular country or globally, and they can use your technology to find that and then do the analysis or do the research that you're talking about? and then actually interdict and have a positive outcome. Let me first explain a little bit about how our company does what we do. Okay. First of all, blockchain is a distributed ledger, which means that it records every single transaction that takes place. That means that if I send one Bitcoin to Nat, anybody can see this happening on the blockchain. If Nat then sends that Bitcoin to you, Michael, anybody can see that information on the blockchain. They can see the transaction happening, right? But they don't know that it's you sending it to Nat, and they don't know that it's Nat sending it to me. They know that it's some identity doing it or some entity doing it, but they don't know. I want to be clear about it because we talk about it because we understand it, but other people will say, oh, it has Eaton's name on it. That's simple kind of thing. It's not that easy, though. Very good point. So yes, to be clear then, when what actually gets recorded on the blockchain is that it records that a certain account had sent money to another account, right? right? And these accounts are represented as a string of alphanumerical numbers, but basically, you know, it's like an account number. So you're absolutely correct. Looking at the blockchain, I may not know that EN sent funds to NAND, but I may be able to see something like account X sent funds to account Y. Right. And account Y then sent funds to account Z. And so one of the things that our company does is to build an extensive database of all these different accounts that we then associate to different illicit activity, right? So we see people selling drugs on the darknet and receiving payment 
from at account A, we'll add that to our database. We see terrorists, you know, receiving funds in their accounts, we add that to our database. With that information, then what we can do is that, you know, anytime one of our clients are performing a transaction, we can take a look at their account, verify all their past transactions in order to give them information like, hey, did you know that the Bitcoin that you're receiving from your client actually originated two days ago from this account that was used to buy drugs? Did you know that this Ethereum that you're receiving is actually linked to this terrorist organization? Now, that's the first way that we provide actionable insights to our clients. The second and more interesting thing that we do is aside from just building this database, which, you know, to be very honest, quickly gets outdated because criminals are constantly creating new accounts. The other thing that we do is to build systems that are able to detect suspicious transaction behavior. And that's really what sets us apart from all the other players out there. So we've built a proprietary system that can detect when people are, for example, you know, concentrating payments into a single account, if they're moving funds through 10 different wallets in a short period of time with the sole purpose of masking where it's coming from. And I think what people don't fully understand today is that with blockchain, we have access to so much more information, so much more data that the analysis that can be done really dwarfs what you see in the traditional world. And that allows us to give a lot more actionable insights to our clients. So to give you a good example, we've successfully helped many of our clients block transactions coming from you know, potential accounts linked to terrorist financing, which allows them to do more effective reporting to the regulators. And we've not only allowed them to you know, detect if illicit funds are coming into their business, we can also stop them from sending funds to illicit activities. Because I think an often overlooked part of transaction monitoring is not just about where funds are coming from. It's also about protecting businesses and making sure that they don't unknowingly send these funds to terrorist organizations. Right. And with blockchain, you can screen the recipient wallet prior to doing the transaction. Is there a way to create incentives? I mean, that's just so fascinating and brings up a ton of questions for me, actually. I'm sure Nat as well. Is there a way to incentivize people to have what I'll call named accounts? So it's basically me saying, I'm not violating any laws. I'm never going to do any AML. You can KYC me until I die and you can watch all of my transactions. Do you know what I mean? And, and in this way, all the accounts that aren't named kind of fall into the dark category of maybe they are doing something wrong kind of thing. Is there a way to put not governmental pressure, but even social pressure, right? Like you wouldn't walk into a room at a party and everybody says their name and you're just like, just call me guy. Do you know what I mean? You'd get thrown out of the party. So I think it would be possible. Now, the issue that the industry faces, or rather that the world faces, is that privacy is becoming increasingly important. Of course, it's opt-in for sure, yeah? But go ahead. Mm -hmm. And not only is it becoming increasingly important, and even though it's an opt-in regime, the problem becomes that it's difficult to balance with half your clients are opt-in and half your clients are opt-out. Yeah. And not only that, I think we're also overlooking the fact that a lot of people were attracted to the cryptocurrency space because of the perceived anonymity, sure. right? And I'm not saying that, you know, everybody who wants to be anonymous is a criminal. We, we definitely see a lot of, you know, rich individuals who are very privacy-centric, right? Which has led to the emergence of businesses that operate what we call mixers and tumblers, where their sole purpose is to mask where a person's funds are coming from by combining the funds of random people. Yep. And... An interesting fact that I always find very fascinating is 
as much as mixers and tumblers are a high-risk category in many countries, it's actually legal to operate a mixer or a tumbler in the U.S. You can apply for a license to run that as a business where you do KYC on your clients and then you perform the, the action of mixing their funds for them. Because, you know, these people are just privacy-concerned individuals who don't want people using Merkle Science software to trace where their funds are going. And so they happily pay a fee to a legal mixer to obfuscate their transaction flows and allows them to, you know, transact privately. But in the event that regulators find that there is an issue, they can then contact the mixer to say, hey, can you please provide me information about your client, where he got his funds, and things like that. So... Yeah, we're, we're seeing interesting businesses evolve. Yeah, I mean, in a way, there's an arms race going on, right, between the privacy for people that want privacy. And, and privacy is very important. It's very important to me as well, but also for the people that want transparency. And at some level, there's going to have to be some intersection there where, because like you said, in the physical world, if I have $10 million in the bank, I could literally take out a million dollars of cash and I could give it to 100 people who could get on an airplane. Or I could buy an apartment in Manhattan if I'm a Russian citizen and then sell it a few years later and just deposit the money in five different bank accounts in the United States. And that money's been laundered effectively. It's not that hard to do. But in the crypto world, it's much more difficult because it's much easier tracked at some level, yeah? Because all the data's there. Now, you run into this um, data overload, but we talk about this a lot. With compute power expanding exponentially, and with bandwidth also expanding, a company like Merkle Science can literally do this analysis. I mean, I don't know how long it takes now, but God knows when quantum computing becomes a reality, it could almost be instantaneous in a way, no? Exactly. And this information overload is actually an issue that we're facing. And let me be a little bit more specific. Go ahead. With the information at hand, compliance officers are now finding their job both easier and more difficult, right? And, and specifically, let, let's say, you know, I'm a criminal. My account has been flagged by Merkle Science to be linked to terrorist financing. Now, I then send my Bitcoin to Nat, and Nat then sends her Bitcoin to you. Now, let's say, Michael, you're an exchange. If Nat had walked into your business and handed you a wad of cash, your analysis of where the funds come would basically, okay, Nat, where do you get your funds? And you'd be happy whatever answer she gave you. I couldn't check. Yeah, you couldn't check. Exactly. Now, with crypto, you now are able to see that the funds that you got from Nat actually originated from me, which is linked to terrorist financing. Right. right? And in fact, we can go back as far back as we want, which means that you know when we do analysis for, the, for our clients, not only can we tell our client that, hey, your client A got his Bitcoin from account B, we can say that account B got it from account C, which got it from account B, and we can go back as far back. Now, this is great. It's giving a lot of transparency. But the question becomes, where do you stop? Right. Right. Because if you can see the history of every single virtual asset, can you ignore the fact that, you know, three degrees of separation, four degrees, five degrees of separation, it was coming from an illicit actor? Right. I mean, let's be honest. If, if you take any U.S. dollar that's been in circulation for a number of years, the odds of it passing through the hands of a criminal it's a given, right? And in fact, the same could be said for cashing in any country. So sometimes, you know, when we have conversations with clients, they start saying, you know, why do I need to go back so far? Why do I need to look so far, right? If you look at the traditional sense, I only need to know where my client got his money from. 
And so now with access to all this data, the question becomes, how far back must you look and can you afford to close an eye? Right? And if the answer is no, then yes, to your point, there's a lot of computational power needed to analyze the entire blockchain every time a transaction happens. But then I don't understand, Ian, with this information, the government should make peace with crypto then because they know exactly where the funds coming from, what's the risk on AML. But why isn't that the case that we're seeing right now? So there's a couple of reasons for it. First, I think it's important to, to make sure that everyone in the audience is aware that not all cryptocurrency is traceable. There are certain cryptocurrencies that fall in the category of, of what we call a privacy coin, where they're designed such that it's difficult for people to trace. And interestingly enough, we've seen different governments approach this differently with some governments outrightly banning privacy coins because there's no way to do any tracing and effective money laundering with other countries simply just highlighting it as a higher risk asset class. The other reason, and, and this is what I feel could be the more important reason, is the fact that at the end of the day, cryptocurrency operates outside the financial system, which means that even if regulators are aware that an account is being used by a terrorist organization for money laundering, there is nothing that they can do to close that account or to stop that account from doing transactions. In fact, if you go online, we've even seen, you know, terrorist organizations blatantly holding up their cryptocurrency account number. The guy's not even wearing a mask. He's not afraid of people knowing who he is, right? He's blatantly holding up his Bitcoin account and propagating this online saying, hey, please donate funds to our terrorist organization. And the scary thing is, even though regulators are aware of this image circulating, there is nothing that they can do to actually stop funds going in and out mm. of that account because it's not in control of any financial institution or any bank. They can't give a freezing order, a cease and desist order. All they can do is watch it happen. So you're saying the problem is not being able to pinpoint who the bad guy is. The problem is enforcing against them, being exactly. able to access the fund. That's one of the big issues. This is a fascinating example of like reverse policing, right? In other words, it seems to me what Merkel and similar companies are doing are saying, we're going to help you stop yourself from dealing with illicit actors and then just isolating those illicit actors, hopefully, at scale. Whereas governments are trying to say that's illegal and trying to shut down the account. The big problem with that is that account doesn't exist anywhere. It actually exists everywhere. This is the beauty of decentralized systems. But what you're saying is, I know that Nat doesn't want to break the law or violate any regulations. And if you use our software, we can help you achieve that. Is that fair? Exactly. Right. What we want to do is to provide the relevant information to our clients so that they can make informed decisions about whether or not they are comfortable receiving funds or processing transactions. But at the end of the day, we're also very conscious of the fact that we can't do anything to stop them. And so this really is an effort that the industry and the regulators and the users themselves all have to come together. We all have to come together to acknowledge that, hey, there's only so much that one of us can do. But if we work together and we agree that, hey, we don't want to deal with these exchanges that are unlicensed, that are facilitating money laundering. You know, we don't want to operate on these unlicensed platforms, which then makes it difficult for criminals to launder their funds. That's the only way that we're actually going to see progress being made. Because, I mean, let's be honest, criminals can do their transactions and nobody can stop them. What all we can do is to make it difficult 
for them such that, you know, it becomes unprofitable, hopefully, and serves as an active deterrence. Right. Hmm. So what kind of companies do you work with to implement the solution at Merkle Science in order to protect funds being funneled to these illicit activities or criminal activities around the world? So today we, we work with quite a wide range of different businesses and organizations. On the one hand, we have your traditional crypto businesses such as exchanges, custodians, wallets, right? As part of the day-to-day operations, they're receiving funds, processing transactions. And so we come in to help screen all incoming and outgoing fund flows to make sure that interactions don't happen with illicit actors. And in the event that something does happen, they can also call upon us to assist with investigations. Now, that's kind of what we started out back in 2017, 18. But today we work with, you know, more traditional firms such as banks, asset managers, hedge funds, where interestingly enough, we have use cases where these organizations want to deal with cryptocurrency themselves, right? So the fact that they're touching these crypto, they need to be able to verify a source of funds. But more interestingly, we're also being engaged by these companies in order to perform due diligence on their counterparties. And by that, I mean, imagine a situation where a bank wants to open an account for an exchange. Now, the bank isn't touching crypto at all. The bank's client is the exchange who wants to use the bank for fiat. Yet at the same time, the bank is concerned about whether or not this exchange is one that actively facilitates money laundering. Because if they do, the bank is still going to get into trouble from the regulators. Hey, why are you opening an account for this exchange that's money laundering? So where we come into the picture is, you know, the bank may engage us to do an audit on the exchange where we tap onto the blockchain's open and transparent network in order to analyze the exchange past, let's say, five years worth of transactions. Right, where we can then tell the bank, hey, did you know that this exchange has been operational for five years? In its first year, 20% of its funds were coming from accounts linked to terrorist financing, 30% of funds went to gambling sites. And this is how their transaction behavior has evolved over time. And the beauty of this is that we are performing this analysis without the exchange even aware of consenting, because all this is done based on public available information. Right, so I think it's bringing a whole new dimension to surveillance and audits and you know, leveraging on that. We are now doing the same thing with regulators, where regulators are actively engaging us to say, hey, these are the exchanges in my jurisdiction, which are licensed. Can you help me independently monitor their transactions? Because I want to know if any of them are facilitating money laundering. And I want to know if there's any red flags because... If there are, I would expect these exchanges to file a suspicious transaction report, right? And so if your platform is saying that Exchange A received funds from a terrorist finance, terrorist organization, but Exchange A did not file an STR with me, that's a cause for concern. And to take this one step further, today we're also being engaged by you know consultancy firms who are tasked with performing due diligence on businesses before investment. And in fact, most recently, we even got into the Lloyds of London's program. So that's an insurance company over in London. We got into one of their programs where we'll be working together with them to develop a solution to assist the insurance industry with risk assessment on crypto businesses, again, by analyzing all these businesses' transaction behavior on the public network. That's awesome. And we'll have to have you on the Wolfcast to talk about... (laughs) All of the regulatory stuff you're doing on the blockchain with Lloyds of London, the London market obviously 
is basically the epicenter for the insurance market for the entire world. So that should be a fa- another fascinating conversation. <laughs> Go ahead. Now. Now, I was just going to ask that it seems that there is actually a way that government and crypto can coexist going forward, right? If there are tools to help them deal with uh, how to monitor and flag risks that's going on on the blockchain, like companies like Merkle Science and what are you doing? So what, can you give us a sense on what the Southeast Asian regulators' stance is currently on crypto adoption and regulations today? Definitely. So I think the overall stance of regulators across Southeast Asia is positive. I think they all recognize the impact it can have on what they're doing, and they're all trying to create this safe environment for the ecosystem. Right. And we can see this most obviously by the fact that a lot of the Southeast Asia countries have started introducing licensing frameworks right? that allow these businesses to apply and operate under a under oversight. right? And this, in fact, has led to a lot of interesting developments. So let's just use Singapore as an example. Now, Singapore has been you know, one of the financial hubs for both traditional finance and the crypto space. But one of the problems that a lot of crypto businesses face in Singapore is the inability to open bank accounts. And this has largely stemmed from the fact that, hey, from banks' perspective, they don't want to risk of onboarding a crypto business and risk losing their banking license. right? And so a lot of these banks are simply saying, yeah, we're only going to deal with crypto businesses that have been licensed. So that way, if anything goes wrong, at least they can go to the regulator and say, well, Hey, you give them a license. You them already. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, it's not my fault. Hey, they're under your oversight, right? How can you blame me for working with them? I didn't do and, it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody just wants to protect their own business, yeah. right? And, and this gives them, you know, plausible deniability. I'm just dealing with companies that you've approved. And so I think the fact that all these licenses are coming in is playing an important role in bridging the gap between traditional finance and the crypto by allowing this bis- traditional business to say, okay, we are now comfortable with dealing with you because our regulators are comfortable granting you a license. And as we see more and more of such frameworks coming into place, we're also seeing you know, all kinds of interesting businesses pop up. Now, Thailand, where you're based now, is a good example, where I think the Thailand authorities did very well in coming up with many different licenses crypto businesses. You know, they have licenses for exchanges, licenses for IEO platforms, licenses for brokers and dealers. So they very neatly categorize the different activities and come up with different frameworks, right? And I think a lot of this was also due to the fact that regulators are increasingly educating themselves on the technology. And more and more governments are also looking to launch their own CBDC, right? So I think, you know, Thailand was one of the first. And, you know, if you look at the news Around Southeast Asia, you see things like, you know, China pushing the use of CBDCs in the 2022 Winter Olympics. You see Hong Kong and Thailand doing a cross-border trial involving over 30 banks. And here in Singapore, of course, we've had Project Ubin for the longest time. Yeah, I think what's interesting, at least in my perspective, is that in Thailand, the way that they're trying to regulate crypto business is to enforce the rule of regulation that they have previously used with traditional companies and enforce it on crypto. For example, they're basing, the regulators are basing the crypto exchange regulation or license using the previous brokerage licensing requirement, which then makes it 
quite hard or complicated for new business to get set up, right? And I think that in a way also increased the cost of operations for, for crypto business as well. So in a way, by legitimizing and regulating the space, they also increase the cost for crypto handling or for users to be able to use this kind of service. Yeah, so I think regulation is sort of a double-edged sword where you kind of have to tread the fine line between making sure that you're supporting the access for the people and also making sure that it's safe for a consumer to use this and the companies that's providing the service is already validated by the regulators. How you think we can work together with regulators and you know, as a company operating in the space to promote and also protect the consumers? You know, the first thing that, that I want to always point out is that governments are concerned that the blockchain technology will be abused. Yet at the same time, criminals abuse our current financial systems all the time. I think we, we definitely need to recognize that there's only so much we can do. You're never going to get rid of all the bad actors, right? All the yet you can do is to put in place policies and regulations and expect the industry to do their best efforts to guard against all these risks. And I think it's important for the crypto industry themselves to step up and demonstrate to the regulators that there are ways that they understand and can manage the risk associated with dealing with cryptocurrency and that they're doing everything that they can, right? And the emergence of more companies that provide crypto-related services, you know, like transaction monitoring, custody, surveillance, insurance, all these play an important role in reducing some of the risk that typically comes with dealing with crypto. And so important dialogue is also very important between you know, the regulators and the industry. And one thing that you mentioned, they cannot just expect the same standards that they place on the traditional space to apply to crypto because of the difference in the way that the technology works, right? And one very good example of that would be the travel rule, hmm. right? The travel rule was the attempt by regulators to impose the SWIFT equivalent to virtual asset service providers. Now, SWIFT is great, right? I think everybody who knows that we use this SWIFT, it's, it's seamless, you know, we're used to doing it. But the same cannot so easily be applied to the crypto space precisely because of the decentralized nature of it. With the banking standards of using SWIFT, SWIFT only allows for transactions between financial institutions. And so it's easy to say that, you know, all transactions need to follow this standard. But in the crypto space, with the emergence of, I mean, with the ability for people to use private wallets and hosted wallets, not all transactions happen between financial institutions, right? Which means that it's very easy for somebody who wants to evade the travel requirements to simply, you know, interpose a private wallet between transactions and bypass this requirement to share information. So important dialogue between the industry would, I think, speed up the development to create this framework that would promote coexistence because otherwise what you have is, you know, regulators saying, we want you guys to do A, the industry saying it's impossible for us to do A. And then <laughs> that leads to many years of uncertainty, you know, costs, resources being wasted. But hopefully you can travel example, we are seeing good progress and I think it has prompted better dialogue. And so I am quite hopeful to see, you know, the new regulations coming out that would hopefully strike a fine balance What's the uh, building blocks that we need? What's needed to promote the use of crypto while also ensure that regulators are happy with the rules of regulations that's being implemented by, by the stakeholders in this space? 
Good question. Difficult answer. <laughs> Now, one of the reasons I think that you know regulators are finding their job so difficult is the fact that you know the blockchain technology itself is still very new, right? Even though it's been around for more than 10 years with the invention of Bitcoin in 2009, the world only started paying more attention to it in 2016, and we're today seeing more and more companies innovating on it. And this is great, but with great innovation, what that also means is that technology keeps evolving, right? And so with a technology that keeps evolving and evolving at the pace that blockchain currently is, it becomes very difficult to come up with a regulatory framework that is going to capture how the technology is going to evolve. Just look at cryptocurrencies, right? Cryptocurrencies, you know, when it first came out, there was only really, you know, one or two types of cryptocurrencies, right? And the debate was always, is it security? Is it not a security? Today, we have things like stable coins. We have protocol tokens. We have NFTs, right? All of which could potentially require different regulatory frameworks in order to capture that, those activities. And without knowing how the technology is going to evolve, I do feel that you know regulators are put in a tough spot. Where on the one hand, they want to protect their citizens, but the other hand, not knowing. How the regulation is going to evolve makes it difficult to come up with a framework that will not stifle innovation. Right? Because what you don't want is to you know come up with a bunch of regulations that makes it impossible for innovators in the space to build new products and services. Right. So with that in mind, what I really like about certain countries is the fact that there are more and more countries creating what we call sandbox environment, where they allow for you know companies to apply to say, hey, this is what we want to do. We have no idea if it's a regulated activity. We have no idea, you know, what it's going to look like. But this is what we want to build. Can you create this environment that will allow us to test it effectively? And I think this is great because what it does, from a regulator's perspective, is allows them to interact directly with these innovators to understand their journey and hopefully, you know, come up with regulations that would take into account the challenges that they face. Yep. And I've got another question for you. It's a, in a little bit of a different direction, but I'm presuming. When most people think about investigations and tracking, they think about a reactive event. Something bad happened. Now you need to go investigate. It seems to me that a company like Merkle Science should just be constantly tracking every transaction on every available or publicly available blockchain, compiling a database almost like a credit score, and then maybe giving accounts, whether named or unnamed, the sort of You know the Merkle stamp of approval, or you know, like Intel Inside, or some type of thing for branding that says, you know, we've been following this account forever. Nothing bad seems to have ever happened here. Or in reverse, saying something strange is going on in account C because of whatever the sort of strange, or maybe too frequent, or maybe too infrequent transactions that are happening there. Is that something that you're also working on? You know, sort of a marketing thing where you're always doing it anyway, but then categorizing everything at scale so you can understand how how that works. I mean, I'm sure you're doing that at some level, yeah. At this point, I want to say, Michael, are you peeking into our company's secrets? <laughs> <laughs> Because what you described is exactly one of the more exciting things that we're working on. So, exactly what you say, right? I think we want to switch from being more investigative to be more, you know, predictive and be more proactive. Yeah. Right, and the great thing about blockchain is that you now have access to this entire database, where we're not just limited to screening the transactions of our clients. We can screen the entire network, 
Yeah. So some of the interesting things that we do is, you know, after working on a couple of cases, after building what we call, you know, typologies and behaviors that we associate with, let's say, criminals. And let me just give you one example. So one thing that we notice with a lot of scam organizations operating in you know, a large scale scams is that they would control what we call large clusters of addresses. Right. right now, a cluster of address is basically a group of address controlled by a single organization or individual. And they would operate large clusters of over, you know, 10,000 addresses. But, and interestingly, out of the, you know, 10,000 plus addresses, more than 95% of those addresses would have only processed two transactions, right. one incoming and one outgoing, right? Because literally receives from, from a victim and then they move it into, you know, their account where they're accumulating funds. Now, recognizing this activity, what we can do is to say, okay, this is a behavior that seems to be very common among scam operations. Can we run a network-wide analysis over the entire Bitcoin blockchain to say how many accounts fit this profile? Right. And then from there, you know, do a deeper investigation and start narrowing down. So instead of, you know, crime happens and then you take a reactive approach. Yep. Now we're actively monitoring the entire network, pinpointing already accounts that we suspect could be linked to, you know, different criminal activity because of the behavior, right? And proactively monitor those accounts more closely and use that information to assist, you know, law enforcement with more pointed investigations. You can actually watch them getting set up and actually watch them doing test trades and then just say, I think something bad is going to happen over there. And I think from a marketing standpoint, you can always do the sort of Merkle stamp of approval and say, since we track everything, we know that these teams are okay and these, you know, clusters of accounts don't look okay. The other thing it will definitely help you do is on the sales side, you could literally call somebody and say, just so you know, the last 10 transactions you did were very likely with a bunch of illicit actors. And if you engage us, then we can help you not do this anymore kind of thing. Exactly. And, and that's a great conversation starter, <laughs> right? Like people always want to know if they're dealing with criminals and how we can come in because, you know, if their answer is no, they're always afraid. You know, my next call going to be with, to their regulators, right. right? To let the regulators know. You mentioned that at your old law firm, doesn't have to be mentioned that they were very conservative. So they didn't want to get involved in this style of business because it may tarnish the reputation. I'm presuming at some level that your parents were ridiculously proud of you for graduating from law school and becoming a solicitor. It's just a, every family kind of has that thing. It's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, everything else is like family disappointment. But was there some concern among your family back in 2016 when you said, I'm giving up my job here to go do this supposedly illicit thing? And the reason why I'm asking is because now I feel like it's changed because now you're actually doing something noble. And I think it's well more obvious today. And I'm curious if the family's opinion has changed as well, because I think it's indicative of the larger society. So I think the good thing about my parents is that they're, they're quite open-minded. As well as the other good thing about them is that they didn't know anything about crypto in 2016 and 17. So they weren't, so you they know, influenced by, yeah, they weren't influenced by, by the negative media out there. So, you know, when I told them, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go and move into the blockchain and crypto space. All they heard was that, Hey, my son's going to work for a tech startup. Right. <laughs> they were like, yeah. They, they called and, their friends right away. And, and tech startups have a very good reputation. History. Yeah, reputation now, right? You, you always read about all these guys making a huge amount of money. So, so to that extent, 
I probably had a little bit easier, right? Okay. I didn't go into the details of what I do. I was saying, I work for this tech company. You know, they're very promising in this up and coming field, right? Which definitely helped ease the transition. Fair enough. But I will say that, you know, after they, they did discover or find out a little bit more about what I'm doing, there, there were some concerns. Right. Today, it's very different. In fact, my dad constantly texts me and say things like, hey, Bitcoin's hit 30K. Should, should I buy more? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Can you buy more Bitcoin for me? Right? And he sees it as part of his investment portfolio. So it. definitely. <laughs> it, it would be funny if you, you know, show him a list of the transaction that you track using his account. You bought Bitcoin from the sky. Do you know who sent that Bitcoin from the sky? That would be really creepy as well. <laughs> a little bit tracking your dad. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the society's impression of crypto is wildly different. And I have so many stories, right? Like my, my girlfriend's cousin, for example, runs a crypto exchange. And he runs one of the oldest cryptocurrency exchanges in Singapore. Right. He was around since 2014, 2015 in Singapore as an exchange. And she used to say, you know, in all the family gatherings, when, when he used to tell people what he does, people were like, you know, who is this guy? Like, what is he doing? Right. right. Like, and then say things to his parents, like, are you worried about your son's career and future? And like today, <laughs> that exchange is considering an IPO and like cousins and relatives who never spoke to him are calling him up asking, hey, should I buy Bitcoin? Like, what should I do? Yeah, very different. That's needed. Also, and the reason why I set that up is because I wonder what the sales cycle is like for you now. You know, back in the old days, since, you know, 2017, when you went to sell the product, people must have been like, ah, I don't really care. or I don't understand. Is it easier today? Much easier, at least in terms of having the conversation. So the biggest challenge that we had in, let's say, 2018, when we were really going hard trying to sell the product was two things. Number one, educating them on what it is that we did. Right. When we used to tell people, you know, we do blockchain transaction monitoring, they'd be like, what's that? How is that different from fiat transaction monitoring? Right. So first we had to convince them what it is that we did. And then we had to convince them why they needed it. Right. And we'll get a lot of pushback like, hey, you know, my country doesn't regulate crypto. Why should I pay for this additional cost? I'm running a business. It's all about keeping costs low. Right. Nobody wanted to pay for something unless they have to. Today, conversations are very different with the licensing framework. Companies proactively reach out to us and say, hey, I want to be licensed. I need your service. What do you have to offer? And it becomes a matter of convincing them to choose us over one of our competitors, where in the early days, it's about why should they even pay for something like this? Right. As you can imagine, you know, a lot of people got into the crypto space in the early days. All they care about is making money. So they had no interest in, in things like compliance. In fact, a lot of the early exchanges didn't do anything like KYC. Anybody could go on there, start buying Bitcoin and start trading it right no compliance at all. From the company perspective, when they think about using your service versus competitors, what are the differences that they should keep in mind? One of the important things I always ask clients is, you know, what are they trying to achieve with a service provider? Because I think it's important to realize that compliance doesn't always necessarily have to be seen as a cost, right? It can also be seen as a way to drive more business and help you manage costs. So we always ask our clients, right? What are you looking for in a provider? Try to understand the way that their processes are currently set up to see how our systems can complement it. The other thing that I'll say is that, you know, one of the things that really gave us a competitive edge and set us apart from a lot of the providers was that we were the first blockchain analytics company for the longest time that did not just what we call source of funds, which was helping clients detect where funds are coming from, but we were one of the first companies that did behavior analysis. And why is that so important? So 
just a quick recap on the difference between the two approach. Source of funds is about you know where funds are coming from, right? It's about relying on this database to flag if the clients are associated with darknet ransomware, and it relies on a database. The larger you are, the larger our database, the more effectively we can highlight risk for clients. Now, the problem with this approach is in the crypto space, it's very easy for criminals to create a new account, right? The moment your account has been tagged to be illicit, criminals will just create a new one. It's also one of the reasons why you see on a lot of the very few governments, in fact, there's only one government in the world today that actively sanctioned cryptocurrency addresses, right? Because the moment you know you tell the world, hey, these are sanctioned addresses, you're basically telling the criminals, we know you're using these accounts, time for you to create new ones. So it becomes very difficult. And so recognizing the limitations of this approach, we were constantly looking in the early days of how can we still perform effective risk assessment, even on, let's say, accounts that have not been tagged by us, right? So we don't know who they belong to. And that's where our CTO's experience in his previous company, PayPal, where he was building fraud detection systems came to play. We realized that instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, let's look at how traditional transaction monitoring is done. Right, you know, we talked about how banks have very little insight as to where cash is coming from. So when you look at how banks do transaction monitoring, it's about having in place rules and alerts that detect for suspicious transaction behavior, anomalies and patterns. And so we decided to combine those two approaches in order to give clients the ability to perform a holistic risk assessment. And this has helped us not only gain an edge over the competition, but help us achieve our goal of trying to bridge the gap. Because now when we pitch our solution to traditional businesses, you know, banks, when they see the fact that we have source of funds and this behavior analysis, which is very familiar to how they do it for fiat, they feel a lot more comfortable by dealing with crypto because now they're looking at the same kind of risk parameters that they've been looking at, you know, for the last dozens of years. Right. So I think this is a good example of how you know the crypto industry and the traditional world needs to come together. And too many crypto businesses, I feel, are trying to do things their way, right? Whereas if they can, you know, be a little bit more flexible and try to see things from the traditional financial system side and incorporate more of their processes into the way that they do things, it'll make the traditional space more comfortable in dealing with them. I learned so much today, and I think our listeners will feel the same way. And I hope that after this episode, our listeners will feel at ease about investing or learning about crypto because there's a way that crypto will get merged into traditional finance in a way that's compliant and regulated. I totally agree. And you know, I'm very excited to see how this space is going to evolve. I do feel that we're still in the very early days of blockchain and crypto, and we're going to see a lot more exciting companies and products being offered down the line. And excited to see how Merkle Science can support these businesses. Yeah, and I want to thank you as well. This was really awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you, Nat. Thank you, Michael, for having me.